Section 3 of the National Geographic Magazine, Volume 7, November 1896. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Economic Aspects of Soil Erosion by Dr. N. S. Shaler, Professor of Geology in Harvard University and Dean of the Lawrence Scientific School. As the scattered drops of a shower gather into streams, the water begins to act in an erosive way. If this gathering takes place at the height of 5,000 feet above the sea, each pound of the fluid has a store of energy of position, which we term 5,000 foot-pounds, which it is to expend on the path to the sea. When the rain comes down on highlands, the first stage of its journey to the sea is commonly made at high speed in torrents. In the torrential division of a river system, we always find the surface cast into steep sloped valleys. Generally, the whole surface is composed of inclines ranging in declivity from 5 to 30 degrees or more, on which surfaces the soil, if it be present, is always moving down the incline at a variable rate. At times, especially when softened by the frosts of winter and filled with water, the earth on these steep hillsides slips in the manner of a landslide down to the bed of the stream. There, it for a short time blocks the way of the torrent, but it is swiftly carried down to the river channels. Commonly, the movements of these earth masses is in the manner of a glacier, slow but steadfast, amounting to a few lines or a few inches a year, rarely to a foot or two in that length of time. So general is this movement that although not readily noted without precise observations, it may by accurate observations be determined on nearly all steep slopes which are covered with a thick layer of soil. During the movement, the expansion of the earth water in times of frost, the enlargement of the roots which penetrate the soil, and in a measure the process of wetting and drying the detritus, operates to thrust the mass the movement being in all cases in the direction in which gravity inclines it to go. Arriving at the margin of the torrent, the procession of the detritus is cut away by the swiftly moving waters and sent on its way to the sea. As above indicated, this process of erosion by the slipping of the soil toward the torrent beds is characteristic of all steeply turned fields. So long as the earth is covered by the normal forest growth, the strong roots are likely to pass through the soil and fix themselves in the crevices of the underlying rocks and clamp, so to speak, the loose materials in their place. In this way it comes about that one of the effects of deforesting a country, even where the lesser vegetation is allowed to develop, is to increase the rate at which the soil goes away to the streams. As yet, this country has not been long enough exposed to the destructive effects of tillage to afford striking instances of the effect of the reckless war which is waged upon the woods by the savages who play that they are the agents of civilization. In Europe, examples of the irreparable damage which may thus be wrought abound. Perhaps the most striking are to be found in the Apennines near Florence, where it is possible to walk for miles on mountain slopes without setting foot on anything but bare rock fields, which a century or so ago bore heavy forests nurtured in a fertile, if not deep, soil. The last of the Medicis who held these woods as crown lands cut the timber without any provision for the replacement of the trees, with the result that the fine soil, before it had time to obtain protection from plants, was swept away. 
In this manner, a great area has been doomed to age-long sterility and a region made desolate, which might, with proper management, have continued to be helpful to man for an unlimited period. The mountainous countries of the old world, with their vast reaches of bare rock slopes, which down to recent centuries were forest-clad, showed the destructive effects of man's heedless assault on the earth. In this country there has not been time for this process of destruction by the axeman to manifest itself in a very serious way. Yet in the Appalachians we can see the evil in rapid progress. South of Pennsylvania there is, according to my reckoning, based on observations in every state in that upland country, an aggregate area of not less than 3,000 square miles, where the soil has been destroyed by the complete removal of the woods and the consequent passage of the earthy matter to the lowlands and to the sea. At the rate at which this process is now going on, the loss in arable or forestable land may safely be reckoned at not less than 100 square miles per annum. In other words, we are each year losing to the uses of man through unnecessary destruction a productive capacity which may be estimated as sufficient to sustain a population of a thousand people. In considering the destruction which the elemental conditions bring upon a country which is subjected to the tax of civilization, the most important fields to be noted are those of the highland districts, for the reason that there the slopes are, on the average, steepest, the rainfall is greatest, and the action of frost is most considerable. There the process of erosion is the most rapid, and the results are the most irremediable. There are, however, no lands in this country, or in any other, where the waste due to tillage is not noteworthy. Even in the prairies, where the average declivity of the surface is not more than one or two degrees, the effect of that bearing of the earth, which is the necessary first step of tillage, is to send a share of the earthy matter from the fields to the streams, and thence to the seas. The close observer who will walk for a day during a time of protracted rain along the banks of a main stream is likely to find that some of the tributaries carry water which is nearly clear, while others discharge a very muddy flow. Examining the cause of the difference, he will note that the relatively clear brooks come from fields that are not tilled, being either in forest or grass while those which are very muddy have a large proportion of their area under plough culture. While the destruction of a ploughed field in a given time is greater in proportion to the steepness of its slope, there are practically no fields, however slight their declivity, which are not exposed in the same considerable measure to this kind of wasting. In a degree, it is the inevitable accompaniment of tillage, which rests on the plan of expelling the natural growth of a soil that place may be made for artificially imposed vegetation. However carefully the work may be done, and whatever the nature of the crop, the earth is for the time bared to the assaults of rain and wind. The question may well be asked whether, if this loss by erosion is a necessary element of tillage, it is not certain that in time all the soils will go on their way to the sea, and the earth thus be made unfit for the uses of man. The answer to this is that the natural regimen of the soil provides a way by which a certain amount of waste in its mass may be in almost all cases made good through the decay of the underlying rocks. This is accomplished by the action of that part of the rainwater which does not flow over the surface, but finds its way into the soil and is slowly yielded to the streams in the form of distinct springs, 
or more commonly in the broad sheet of water which flows down along the bedrock or the hard pan until it enters the drainage channel of the area. This underground water, except in the rare places where caverns abound, moves very slowly and has no erosive effect. What material it takes away, a relatively small amount, is removed in solution. Penetrating to the bedrock, this water, charged with carbonic dioxide and other compounds which add to its decay-bringing effects, attacks the bedrocks, breaks them up, and with the assistance of the roots of the sturdier plants, brings the hard stones into the state of soil. In this way, the natural waste derived from the solutions affected by the underground water, the cutting along the streams, and the slight wearing of the general surface by water action is compensated for by the steadfast reproduction of the soil at its base. In the state of nature, the rate of degradation of the Earth's surface over a region such as the Mississippi Valley appears by the studies of Humphreys and Abbott to be not far from one foot in 5,000 years. At this rate of erosion, we may, from the field evidence, presume that the underground decay will keep somewhat ahead of the wearing actions, and so the soil rather gain than lose in depth. Under complete tillage, such as is now applied, the rate of downwearing will probably become as great as that which exists in the valley of the Po, where the surface descends at the rate of about one foot in a thousand years. Under these conditions, we may be sure that the underground replacement of the soil cannot compensate for the wearing, and that consequently the fertile layer will gradually disappear, as it has done over large areas in the old world and is now doing in other fields of this country. Before proceeding to questions of a distinctly economic nature, those which concern the steps which should be taken to arrest the wasting of our soils, it will be well for us to consider the processes and rates of erosion on two of the many varieties of soils which plentifully exist in this country, namely those of our glaciated districts and those found in the alluvial plains beside the true rivers. The first of these classes constitute about one-third of the possible agricultural and forest lands of this country. The second is of much smaller aggregate area, but on account of its exceeding fertility, is of almost equal tillage value. In glaciated districts, experience shows that the risks of destructive erosion are relatively small. This is owing to the fact that the drift covering, which in its superficial modification constitutes the soil of those regions, is almost always composed of debris so deep and so loosely aggregated that the greater part of the rainwater enters into the earth and thus is preserved from doing erosive work. The result is that even in times of flood, the streams draining from these fields covered by glacial debris are never very muddy. They have no important alluvial plains, and characteristically lack the deltas or detritic cones which are such a prominent feature of the streams which flow from non-glaciated regions. In such fields, soil erosion is so slight that it may give us no concern, except on the steeper mountain slopes, where the slipping of the deposited soils into the torrents may occasionally expose the bare rocks. On the alluvial plains, at least so long as the downcutting of the stream bed does not leave them above the level of the floods, the annual inundations constantly bring down layers of fertilizing sediment, and this at a rate which is pretty sure to compensate for any waste which the most reckless agriculture can bring about. Such soils, unlike those of our ordinary fields, grow by accessions on the surface and not by the decay of the bedrocks. 
It is to this constant superficial gain in fertile materials that they owe their peculiar value to man. Alluvial lands are, however, subjected to a peculiar kind of erosion, that brought about by the lateral swinging of the river channels to and fro in their floodplains. These peculiar pendulum-like movements of the great rivers through their delta accumulations are important for the reason that they are not easily controlled and are often disastrous to the interests of men who dwell upon their banks. The movements are often made in a very rapid manner. Moreover, where the streams change their courses in one portion of the alluvial plains, the regimen of the currents is so altered that the curves thence downward to the mouth are subject to rapid modifications. In this manner, the Mississippi has been endlessly wandering over the flood plains between Cairo and the sea. The natural check to the divagations of a river is found in the protective action due to the growth of trees upon its banks. There are many species which have habits of growth that permit them to flourish in places where their roots and stems are bathed by the floods for a considerable part of the year. These forms have fine roots which entangle the sediments deposited at high water, and they have a habit of growing in close order, so that their thick-set stems arrest the current and cause a plentiful deposition of sediment on the gravel which they occupy. If such a forest develops on one side of a river while the banks on the opposite border are not thus protected, the result usually is that the wooded shore advances while that which is defenceless is worn away. Many of the stream swingings are readily explained by alterations in the development of the water-loving trees. Thus, while the oscillations of rivers cannot be altogether controlled by the planting of these trees, these changes can be considerably reduced by the proper use of such defences. From a large economic point of view, it will readily be seen that the changes in the courses of the great rivers are not very serious, and this for the reason that the area removed on the one side of the channel is in a manner compensated for by a growth on the other side. It is otherwise with the smaller streams which have slight alluvial plains and which often have their channels pressed in against either bank. In these cases the water cuts away the base of the declivity and brings about the rapid movement of the soil down the slope. The loss of tillage area due to this action is considerable. From certain studies which I have made in the country in the basin of the Ohio River, especially in that part of it which lies to the south of the main stream, it may be reckoned that since the general removal of the forests an area of not less than 150 square miles, outside of the torrent section of this river system, has partly or completely lost its soil through this action. We have now glanced at the several modes in which the solar energy, operating through the instrumentality of the winds, the waves and the rain, tends to remove the detrital covering of the earth on which the substance of all land life depends. We may note in summing up the matter that the attack of the waves is practically irresistible, but that its effect is gradually to diminish the area of the lands, and the process going on so slowly that the immediate effect on human interests is very small. Moreover, as one part of the lands is worn away, compensation is generally made by the uplifting of other areas above the ocean level. The work of the winds in blowing away the friable earth coating is slight, and that for the reason that the surface is well protected by the coating of vegetation. It is when we come to consider the action of the rain that we find ourselves face to face with the really important economic problems of erosion. 
we have seen that in the state of nature the lands are provided against the destruction of the soil which the rainfall would otherwise cause by the admirably contrived protection afforded by the vegetal coating if man occupied the earth under the same conditions as the other creatures of the land he would not disturb the ancient and beautiful relations of the earth and its living mantle in this case the wasting of the soil would go on but at a rate no greater than it would be replaced by the decay of the upper part of the bedrocks the continents would gradually be lowered by the leaching out of the mineral matters in their superficial debris and in some measure by the direct wearing action of the streams but the life-giving covering would descend from stage to stage affording at each step such fertility as the rocks on which it lay might determine the primitive man disturbed the conditions of the soil no more than did the lower animals he made a veil of the natural products of forest field and stream never stirring the earth except it might be to bury his dead but in the first step upward he began his manly career as a devastator he became a soil tiller and with the invention of this art began the greatest revolution in the economics of the earth that has ever been instituted by a living being each extension of civilization has widened the field of destruction until nearly one half of all the land is subject to its ravages it is now a question whether human culture which rests upon the use of the soil can devise and enforce ways of dealing with the earth which will preserve this source of life so that it may support the men of the ages to come if this cannot be done we must look forward to the time remote it may be yet clearly discernible when our kind having wasted its great inheritance will fade from the earth because of the ruin it has accomplished it should be the province of science to point the way to the remedy for this ill it seems to me to be the point of first importance to make clear to the people the conditions under which the earth can be made to yield its fruits without destructive tax upon its resources to attain this end they need in the first place to know that the rainfall which flows over the surface is that which does the work of soil destruction so far as this surface water acts on the soil its influence is evil the share of the rain which enters the earth does not until it emerges in the temporary springs do any erosion work whatever in a variable measure it removes the soil materials in the state of complete solution to appear as the mineral matter of the springs but this very limited destructive effect is on all naturally protected soils more than compensated for by the action of the groundwater in promoting the decay of the bedrocks a process by which the soil is deepened and enriched in the state of nature all the rainfall is indirectly led underground and made to do its appropriate work in the condition of our ill-organized tillage so large a share of the precipitation is sent in its destructive superficial way that the lower soil often lacks the share of moisture which is necessary for the work of decay in the underlying rock and which would be most useful to the crops in time of drought although it is very difficult to make a newly overturned soil safe from the assaults of rain i believe that with a careful and in a large way economical system of tillage it can be done at least provided the inventors can help us over certain mechanical difficulties in the first place it should be noted that the plough which has been much vaunted as a noble contrivance is as ordinarily used an instrument which most effectively serves to compact the earth so that when the few inches of ground tilled become soaked with water the fluid cannot penetrate into the deeper part of the earth the reason for this injurious action can readily be understood 
The pressure of the foot of the plough, due to the counter-thrust of the force used in dragging it forward through the earth as well as to the weight of the instrument, serves in a very effective way to compact and smear the surface over which it passes. When the frost penetrates deeply, the heaving action which it affects operates in a measure to overcome this effect of the plough, but in almost all fields, especially those of the southern part of this country, the artificial hard pan is to the skilled eye most evident. It needs but a comparison of a bit of land which has been long under the plough with a like area still in virgin forest to show the true measure of this action. The one is for a few inches in depth moderately open but at a lower level is so hard that water can penetrate it only in a slow way. The other is open textured to so great a depth that the rain and roots can penetrate in most cases to the rock which has not yet been broken up. There is needed an instrument which will turn the soil in the manner of the spade, a tool which does not pack the under earth, but leaves it in a position very favourable to the downward movement of the water. As my friends who know the nature of mechanics tell me that it will be difficult to make such a contrivance, we may have to content ourselves for a considerable time to come with the ancient, but to my mind by no means venerable, utensil which has already sent the substance of millions of men to the sea. There are ways of using the plough by which its evils may be minimised. In the first place, the tilth should be made as deep as it well can be. The void spaces in the ground which is overturned to the depth of 10 inches will, if the earth be ordinarily dry, take in a rainfall of an inch or perhaps an inch and one half in depth, falling in, say, two hours, without any surface flow, while if the depth of the tillage be but five inches, half the water would have to pass over the surface. The well-known but unhappily little-used process of subsoil ploughing, if discreetly used, is also a valuable means of effecting the penetration and storage of water. Underdraining also tends to the same end. In certain parts of the southern states of this country, where the evil effects of the surface flow have forced themselves upon the attention of the people, the farmers have begun to guard against the destructive action of this agent by forming temporary benches in the sloping fields. In the old world, the system of benching the hillsides is carried much farther than it is in any part of this country. In Germany, France and Italy, the greater part of the land that lies on steep declivities which have not been brought to ruin in the earlier and less conservative agriculture is now protected from destruction. Although we may expect a constant gain in the application of this conservative treatment of our fields, we cannot look to it alone for their safeguarding. Another class of precaution demanded by the elemental conditions of this country must be taken, and that we will now note. Owing to the fact that in North America generally the rainfall is apt to have a torrential character, the precipitation taking place at a rate which is not common in Europe, and to the fact that these downpourings are likely to occur on ground which has been loosened by the frost, our soils are exposed to a measure of danger much greater than that which menaces the fields of the old world. There appears to be but one way by which we may meet this danger. This is by limiting the work of the plough to those fields which have a degree of slope so slight that with proper tillage they may not be exposed to scouring action. Although this classification has to be made for each district and species of soil, it may in general be said that no field which has a greater slope than 5 feet vertical in 100 feet of length should in any country be exposed to the danger which ordinary cropping inflicts. 
areas from this measure of inclination upward to thrice this rate of slope or to a maximum of fifteen feet in the hundred may reasonably be ploughed in order to bring them into the state of grasslands but should not be tilled more than is necessary to retain them in this state all areas having a slope of more than fifteen feet in one hundred should by the rules which the conservator of the soils is disposed to lay down be devoted to forests which afford the only crop that can be harvested from such ground without a swift and irremediable loss of fertility it may be asked how these rules can be enforced after much consideration of the matter i am satisfied that our only reliance is on an education which will bear in upon our people the duty they owe to the soil and the ways in which they may discharge this great obligation our folk are dutiful at every step in their advance they have striven not for the moment's profit but for the good of generations to come if this admirable motive be impressed by knowledge we can trust to it for the remedy the scarred and unfertile fields of this country which to the extent of millions of acres mark the results of a few generations life upon areas which nature fitted for the unending support of man are not evidences of lack of care on the part of the people who brought this ruin they were of the breed which willingly lays down life for an idea for a belief in creed or state teach them what the soil means to their kind instruct them in the arts by which it may be cared for and we may trust as we needs must to the fruit of this knowledge it is much to be deplored that there is not in our schools a single book to tell the youth what every one should know concerning the foundations of life in the soil or the conditions under which the generation to which he belongs may pass on the precious heritage to those who are to come after such instruction can alone be enforced through the exertions of those who have been brought to see the truth and who are willing to labour for its diffusion end of section three